Now, understand something doesn't quite look right about what's going on right now. Normally, I don't show up this late in the broadcast, but my part is normally first. But I assure you, there's nothing wrong with your screen. Your laptop's not messing up. There's nothing wrong with the image quality of the camera. It's just this. And for those of you worried, Pastor Ken is perfectly fine and in perfect health. Matter of fact, he's actually in the room here with me. But he asked if I would be interested in preaching one Sunday, and I said, sure. If you've never ever visited us in the contemporary service over the last nine years, you may not even know, but I've preached here at King Thorant several times when Pastor Skip was here. But it's been a while, so I'm a little rusty. So this could be a 10-minute sermon, or it could be 45. Even I'm not sure at this point now that the camera is rolling. So, both of us are going to be surprised here. But you actually have an advantage over the folks here on campus this morning. Because if I start to get long-winded, you can actually press the pause button and step away for a minute. They're stuck. So that's points for you. So let's get started, shall we? Pastor Ken introduced a new series last week called Beyond the Faint Heart. Eight Ways to Move Beyond Discouragement. It's a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Today, we take a look at verse 2, and it says this. Instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of truth. Seems like an odd place to just pick up as a jumping off point for an entire message, don't you think? I mean, these are all things that we should do, right? But just by itself, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you, what you have to remember is that Paul wrote these as letters to the Corinthian church. And we have to remember that the purpose in writing this sentence here was not to make an entire sermon out of, which, by the way, was very rude of him. Not to be thinking about how easy it would be to get everything you need out of one verse. So Paul wasn't making his final thought here. So we need to do a little reading to find out how we got to this point. Because there's still 14 more verses after verse 4. And 9 more chapters after that. So the only place to go to to find out how you got somewhere is to go back. Now, as I said in the beginning, we are in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. But most of what we're going to pull from today is actually one chapter back in chapter 3. Now, before we do that, I'm going to do something I don't know if any other preacher has ever done. I'm going to give you the final point, the final thought, the one you take away with right now. I'm going to give you the end of the sermon at the beginning. And the best way I could relate it to you was through the lyrics of a song. Now see, you thought you were going to get through an entire message from the worship guy and it had nothing to do with the song. And you'd be wrong. But for this, I'm not going to break out the guitar or wheeling or piano. I'm actually going to share with you the lyrics of a song from a group called People and Songs. It's called New Name Written Down in Glory. And this one line 
is the whole takeaway for today. It says, I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. We are who we are because Christ defines us. Now that you have that information, you can choose to stick around and hear the rest or take that much and go to spend the day at the beach or get a jump start at the lines of Cracker Barrel. My personal hope is that you'll stick around to see why this statement is so important in overcoming discouragement. So let's take a look at 2 Corinthians, the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. The first letter was aptly titled 1 Corinthians. And it was a letter answering questions that this new church had. How do we do this? Why do we do that? What does it mean to do this? Paul answered those questions in a letter. The second letter saw him answering to some people, challenging his status as an apostle. Like, what makes this guy so special? He can't really be an apostle. He doesn't have the right stuff. Let's see part of Paul's response to the Corinthian church back in chapter 3. Now, we're going to read the whole chapter. So make sure you're sitting in your comfy chair. Because it says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. He has made us confident as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in stones, letters on stone, excuse me, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, 
are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Now that we've gotten that whole chapter out of the way, let's break it up into smaller parts to help us understand what he was trying to say. As we look at this first section, which we're going to group from verses 1 through verse 6, we're going to call this Paul's place. Paul begins chapter 3 by addressing a zealous group of people called the Judaizers. They were a group of people that were trying to mix the gospel of Jesus with the law. Now, for those that are unfamiliar with what I'm saying with gospel versus the law, let me describe it like this. The law was the Old Testament way of making yourself right with God. Do this, don't do this, make up for your sins by doing this. Now, the gospel was completely different. It says you can't do anything to pay for your sins. Jesus has to do it all. And he did it by dying for your sins. So we have law, we do, versus grace, he does. So, the Judaizers were, take, were trying to, the old way of the law and mix it with the gospel. Like, hey, you can do this Jesus thing and all, but you might want to do these things too. Their major emphasis was that salvation was by faith in Christ, plus keeping the law. They also taught that you as a believer were made perfect in your faith by obeying the laws of Moses. So this gospel of legalism was extremely popular. Why? Because it's in our very nature to want to achieve religious goals rather than fully trusting Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to work. It's way easier, way easier to measure religion than true righteousness. So these Judaizers bragged and boasted, they carried letters of recommendation from all of the important people in the Jerusalem church. And they had no problem pointing out that Paul had no such credentials. Apparently, that was a big thing even 2,000 years ago. You're not important because you didn't go to this school, or you don't own this kind of car. Or you're not important because you didn't work at this company. But us? Yes. Looks us, looks us, look us up. We're important. Find out who we are. So you should listen to what we say. Let me describe it this way. And this is actually a very special moment. Because as every person on staff here at the church knows, I don't really like sports. And they love to see the confusion on my face when they make sports analogies in their messages. Well, now it's my turn. I get to use a sports analogy that makes sense. To me, at least. How many of you guys have ever seen this logo before? Now, if you've seen this, you know that this is the logo for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. The premier home for mixed martial arts in the world. MMA is a mixture of various styles of martial arts used in a sanctioned fighting setting to see who wins the fight. They use ideas and concepts from wrestling, boxing, judo, kickboxing, capoeira, 
jiu-jitsu, western boxing, sambo, and many other styles. Easy, right? Most of you are familiar with what it is, even if you've never watched it. But the trick is, it hasn't always been that way. Back in 1993, when the UFC began, it was a proving ground where people of different fighting styles came in to prove whose style or discipline was better. So you would have a kickboxer versus a sumo wrestler, a boxer versus a jiu-jitsu fighter, and on and on. Well, if you ever watched any of those earlier UFC cards, they would always do these fighter intro packages where the guy would come out like Mr. T and say, crazy things like, I pity the fool, and, and brag about how much how they were like a ninth degree black belt in some crazy martial arts discipline nobody had ever heard of from some distant Asian country nobody could find on the map. But they were a master at it, and they claimed to, to have defeated thousands of men with just their bare hands. Well, as time went on, these ninth and tenth degree masters of their discipline were getting beaten up by these guys that very unassuming tough guys that, that grew up fighting in the streets and outside of bars. Guys with the dad bods and checkered pasts. Well, Vince, that can't be right. You can't just have some guy coming in off the street putting a beating on a kung fu master. I mean, look at him. He's got those funny looking pajamas on and he's wearing a black belt. And he said words I didn't understand. This guy's got to be legit the best fighter in the world, Right? No, it wasn't the guy that studied these secret Asian martial arts styles from generation pasts, from sensei to sensei. It was the guy that knew what worked in a real fight that won. The guy that had tried it out in an actual scenario and knew what to do and better yet, what not to do, that usually won the fight. So people began finding out that there were people out there with these amazing-looking martial arts pedigrees that could never win in a real fight. Sure, that stuff looked really good in a tournament. But when it came down to it, they found out that what they thought they knew about what made them this master of their discipline really didn't mean a whole lot. And that's what Paul is seeing here. People were coming at him saying, you don't have this or didn't come from this background. What proof do you have that you're really as good as you say you are? Paul answers that easily in verse 2 when he says, the only letter of recommendation we need is you. Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Paul said you. This church is our proof of what we were sent here to do. I don't need other people's recommendations to prove anything because I'm writing a letter to the thing that proves what I know and what I'm doing is real. And later in verses five, it is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Paul is saying that even though I am a highly educated man, don't look at me. Look at what God's done through me. There's your proof. The true test of a ministry is changed lives. Not press clippings or headlines in the paper or clickbait articles online. It is much easier for the legalist to boast, hey, did you see how many views I got online last week? 
My new Instagram post already has 200,000 likes since just yesterday. Pretty nice, huh? Yeah, views and all are cool. But did people connect with your post or your message? Did they hit like or did they hit reset on their lives and some, something changed about them? That's what Paul said here. I mean, not in those words because the internet wasn't a thing back then. But his message is the same. Yeah, your stuff's cool and all. But look at those people and the lives that were changed. And it wasn't because of me. It was because of God. So Paul's place was stuck between seeing what he's already seen done through this ministry and what people around him are trying to tell him he's done. Discrediting his background. Looking for justification for what they've done. All the while, they're missing the entire message of what Christ did. Which was to say, hey guys, I'm the one that can forgive sin. I'm the one that can restore this broken relationship between you and I. There's now work. Um, there's no work. There's, there's no sacrifice. There's no list of things you can do or a job title that will make any of this right between us. It's me. I did this. Just keep your eyes on me. So now we move from Paul's place to preaching problems. Just before this next section, we look at Paul says in verse six, he has enabled us to be ministers of this new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. Paul spends verses seven through 18, reminding them that the law was the old way and that it's not how things are done now. The new way is grace. But see, the thing is, Paul didn't just make this whole grace by faith thing up. He didn't just come up with this new and flashy trend to sell t-shirts or to get likes online. They were all told this was coming a long time ago. God said it a long time ago. Look back, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. It says this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as husbands loved their wives, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor, they will, need, or, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Now hold up. Something about that sounds mighty familiar. Oh, that's right. That's exactly what Paul wrote in his letter. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't a surprise. The Lord said it already. Hey, look, one day, all of this is going to be done. And we're going to do things differently. And that was fulfilled 
when Christ died on the cross and the veil was torn. Again, allow me to explain a little of what happened in case you're not familiar with what all that means. Or perhaps you're the type that loves to yell out, Amen, when good words are spoken. Well, this is for both of you. When Jesus Christ was hung upon a cross, he died for our sins. And at the moment of his death, the veil to the temple which separated what, which, what was believed to be God's presence and our way to get to God was torn in half. Not figuratively, literally. There was nothing keeping us from God anymore. No steps, no rituals, no sacrifices we had to make. Because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, that's how man paid for their sins. It was a sacrifice made, usually with animal's blood. It had to be spilled. But in this case, Jesus, the Lamb of God, spilled his blood, died and paid that price for us. And then, when he rose from the grave, he conquered sin and death so that it could have no more power over us anymore. And yet, there's still people out saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is good and all, but... You still got to pitch in there. But that's not what God said. The Old Testament law was preparation for the new covenant. We as a people had to understand what was required long before we could understand what was paid. Let me say that again. We had to know what was required long before we could understand what was paid. Nobody understands the value of something quite like someone who had, has had some kind of great debt forgiven. You may remember for our 50th anniversary, we were fortunate enough to be able to purchase medical debt from, uh, for folks in the area and pay it off so that it wasn't a burden to them anymore. People who would not ever be able to come out from under those bills. And I'm not saying that to say, hey, look at us. What I'm saying is those people understand what it means to have some great debt forgiven. Maybe yours is student loans or a credit card or a mortgage. Maybe you've had someone forgive that debt or take that on for themselves. Maybe it was paid in full one day and you realized you'd never have to deal with that again. That's what God is saying here. We're going to do it this way so you can understand what needs to happen in order for us to get where we need to go. The Old Testament covenant, with its emphasis on external obedience, was really preparation for the new covenant message of grace. And the emphasis was on internal transformation. Paul goes on in verse 7 to talk about the old way leading to death. Even though it began with such glory, what was he talking about? He talks about Moses and how when he had an encounter with God, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone, reflecting God's glory. See, when you come down from that close to being with God and his holiness, you can't help but reflect who he is. So when Moses came down with this new law, his face was shining bright. And so began our expectation of the bright and shiny things of life catching our attention. But when that shine wears off, we're ready for the next thing. The law was our new and shiny toy. But Moses knew that eventually the shine would fade 
So he covered his face. He put a veil on his face. Paul spends verses 8 through 11 pleading with the people to understand the difference between the old way and the new way. He says, shouldn't we expect greater glory under the new covenant? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was so good, how much better is it going to be now that we have the new way? And that new glory is brought through the Holy Spirit. Then, in verse 10, matter of fact, the old way wasn't even as glorious at all compared to the new, overwhelming glory of the new way. But if you believe the old way of sacrifices and offerings and condemnation and all that was good, and that's being replaced, how much better is this new thing? But some people would rather feel that burden of guilt in order to feel like they're closer to God. Some people like to hold on to that guilt and shame in order to feel like Christ did something for them. And that's not why Christ did that. He didn't die for you so that you could hold on the, on the stuff over your head and say, hey, look at how bad you are, but I love you anyway. Christ says, I love you regardless of this. Don't get it wrong. Christ wants to see you change in your heart and in your life. But that love and forgiveness is not predicated on you doing something first. He already did all the work. He did all the heavy lifting. There's nothing for us to do. But these Judaizers look to believe that we can somehow help God by doing just a couple extra chores around the house to earn that allowance money. Paul says, looking at in verse 12, that since God's way is so much better, we can be bold in what we do. We can have confidence in this new way. We don't have to worry that this is just a trend. We don't have to worry about where this whole Jesus thing is going. It's not changing. It's not going anywhere. It's here to stay. Paul points out in verse 14 that people's minds were hardened. And that same veil covers their minds so that their minds cannot understand the truth. That veil can only be removed by believing in Christ. Not believing in Christ and doing a little something extra. You can't preach the word of God and add to it with some fine print. My wife Ashley and I have been married for 12 years. And we dated three years before that. So in reality, she's had to put up with me now for about 15 years. But when I met her, she was working for an ophthalmology office. And for those that are unfamiliar with that, they're an eye doctor. But not like the guys you see at Walmart or at the mall. These doctors specialize in eye diseases and serious problems. She still continues that job today. And over the course of 15 years or so, she's told me so many different stories and explanations of procedures more than I can ever remember. But I guess that's why this story stood out to me so much while I was researching for the sermon today. In his book, Enjoying God, author Lloyd Ogilvy writes, One of the most astounding achievements in ophthalmology is the surgery of implanting a lens in the human eye. After a friend of mine had surgery in both eyes and the bandages were removed, he exclaimed, how wonderful to have new eyes. 
Our hearts have eyes. Before conversion, our inner eyes are clouded over with cataracts blocking our vision. We cannot see ourselves and life in the clear light of truth. Nor can we behold God's true nature or see the beauty of the world that he's given us to enjoy. We are spiritually blinded. Conversion begins with healing of our heart eyes by removing our spiritual cataracts. We understand what the cross means for our forgiveness, but we just still don't perceive all that the Lord has planned for us and the power he has offered us. We need a supernatural lens implant in the eyes of our heart. That's exactly what Paul is fighting here. Some people are holding on to the old ways and trying to mix it with the new way. Like they know better than God. And through saying our way is better, they discredit Paul by saying he can't possibly know what he's talking about. Who gave him the authority to speak on this? Nobody vouched for him. But Paul says in verse 18, again, don't look at me. Look at what God has done. So all of us who have, have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So here's Paul, gone on missionary journeys, started churches, seen people come to know the Lord, literally changed the world. And here's some folks saying, well, what do you know? But what they didn't know is that if we look back at verse 13, it says, we are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to end. That phrase, end, means reached its purpose. So here's God, knowing more than us, set up a plan that would end when it reached its purpose. So the old covenant has set an expiration date on it. When it did what it was supposed to do, it was time to do something else. It fulfilled its purpose. Paul knew that. He referenced Jeremiah when he talked about a new way of doing things coming about. But others, like these Judaizers, didn't. So what did they do? They talked down about him. They seek to discredit him. They changed the message that he was bringing to say something that fits their narrative and their needs. To the point that Paul had to write a second letter to the church in Corinth to explain away some of the accusations these folks were making about him, about who he was and where he came from. And here, we catch up to the key verse for today. We move forward to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And right in there in verse 1 and reading into verse 3, we read, Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Paul kicks off this next section of his letter by saying, Therefore, 
Now, back when I was in Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, excuse me, all those many years ago, back in the Stone Age, one of my professors, who was also my pastor at the time, used to drill home a point every time this word came up, therefore. And he would always say, whenever you see the word, you need to see what it's there for. That's the reason we had to backtrack to a whole other chapter. Paul did this to you, not me. Paul is saying here, because people are discrediting me, talking down about me and trying to change the gospel into something it's not. Therefore, since God has given us this responsibility of the ministry of preaching the gospel, we never give up. So we now close with this. Paul's power. Paul is telling the, the, the Corinthian church that we faint not in the face of all of this. If they want to say these things, let them. Because I know who I am and where I come from. And in doing this, verse 2, we reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know, uh, know this. Paul says his ministry was given by God. It's based on the truth of the gospel. And it's working. It's showing fruit. It's produced lives changed. Oh, and just in case you were thinking it had something to do with me. No, it's all because of God. And what he does through me. Paul's power comes from our ending point, which I gave to you at the earlier. This, I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. Let that soak in for a second. Paul was so supremely confident in what he was doing, what he was saying, and where he came from. Because God told him to go do these things. Many modern day preachers can prove anything that they want in the world from the Bible. That's how you know they're good at what they do. But the only way that they can do that is to twist the Bible to say what they want it to say. And many of us will never know the difference because we don't know what the Bible says. Maybe you're having difficulties understanding what you're doing in life, how you fit into God's plan or what even this whole thing is. And that may be because you may not know who you are. Paul is saying here, I am who I am because the I am, God, tells me who I am. Are you able to say that you are carrying out the ministry that God's laid out for you? And you can be confident in what that is because you understand the simple truth that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you can have that relationship with him. And you can do this, as Paul says in verse 2, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of truth. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of the Greek translations of what each word means in that sentence in verse 2, but as I look them up, it basically means this. It means we are introducing ourselves to the part of every man that relates to God by living an open and true life that everyone can see. And that 
is where you can find power to overcome discouragement in your life. You need to understand, like Paul did, that you are who you are because God said it about you. God gave you this great ministry and not in the, I work at a church as a pastor or a minister kind of ministry. No, this is the gift and responsibility that we have to share that love that was shown to us. But you can be bold and confident in who you are and what you do because God told you to do it. God designed you. God is calling you to do these things. You don't have to be bound by laws and rules that lead you just from condemnation to past sins and mistakes. And people come at you because of past things. You can simply point to them to the Bible and say, hey, this is all the reminding I need. I'm not that person anymore. You can know that God will always define who you are. And that makes you a very powerful part of this world. Much more than degrees or internships or the right network of business partners, much more than your number of followers on social media, much more than the great number of people that get frantic trying to impress you when they hear you're coming around, it's God that defines you. And it's God's power through the Holy Spirit that guides you. Always remember that. When people try to come at you with accusations or try and discredit you in some way, your foundation is on the gospel of truth. And that gospel of truth is God loves you, died for you, so that you can be with him in heaven forever. I want to take a moment to pray for you all today. Maybe you're like Paul and you know where your power comes from. But maybe you're feeling a little down or discouraged about your place in the world. I want to pray that you realize how God sees you and how he has designed you to go through life. And then I want to pray for those who may be out there that don't know Jesus. Maybe you came across this, this broadcast by accident, but I assure you there was no accident. God put you here today to hear this message. You can have that relationship with Christ that I talked about. God can forgive you of your sins, your past, and your future mistakes too. It's as simple as realizing that you've sinned before. And because of that, you need someone to take that sin away from you. You can pray something as simple as this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I realize there's nothing I can do to make this right. And I ask right now that you forgive me of my sins because I understand you died for me. You paid that price. And I thank you. And in this moment, as I'm praying... Maybe you want to pray that prayer. There'll be plenty of time to do that during this prayer. So let's pray together now. Dear Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for this time that we've had together to, to get into your word, Lord. And I pray now for those that are out there hearing this message that are struggling with who they are and what the world says about them. Lord, I pray that every one of them knows that they are who they are because you have said who they are. And Lord, that they can take that power with them. Knowing that who they are is based on the gospel of truth. Not anything else designed by man to make us feel good about ourselves. Lord, I also pray for those out here who may not know you. And I pray that in this time, if you're drawing on their hearts, Lord, have them pray those words. 
understanding that they are a sinner and they need forgiveness. Lord, thank you for this time together today that we can spend in the Word. Thank you for those that are here on campus, Lord, those that are at home watching this and people everywhere serving in your great name. We want to say that we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, for those of you who may have prayed that prayer to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, we'd love to know that. If you would reach out to the website on your screen right now, we'd love to hear your story and share some things with you that will help you in this new life that God's given you. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door unless you say, hey, can somebody come visit me? But we'd love to help get you going now that this veil has been lifted from your face and your eyes have been uncovered. So reach out if you'd like to know more. Kings Grant, I thank you so much for sticking around after I gave you permission to leave earlier. I appreciate you letting me share with you as we continue in this Beyond the Faint Heart series. And don't let your hearts faint. Pastor Kim will be back next week for the next part of this series. God bless you guys. We love you so much. Guys, have a great week. Thanks. Thanks.